My mother always told me, she says, look, there is nothing that you can't speak with me about. But when you're 16 and you've killed someone, how do you go to your mother and say, uh, where do you begin? Because, you know, after I committed the crime, you know, the guilt that came on me was, you know, immeasurably heavy. And then just at that age, I still, I just understood the absurdity of it all. Did I actually think that I could just kill someone and live happily ever after? I mean, how did I think that was a good idea? So the insanity of it, the, the madness of it, how do you at 16 begin to find the thread to which begin a narrative? How do you even explain that? Hi, Miss Talent. Thank you very much for connecting. I got your name from an article in the New York Times, and I'd like to know if you or someone you know would please consider helping me find a writing job decent enough for me to come and settle in Northern Ireland. I get lots of messages, emails, DMs, and even handwritten notes. They flood in every week. Some are simply a hello, usually from a Crime World listener who just wants to give me a virtual wave. Some contain important information valuable in my work as a crime reporter and others are made up of ranting conspiracy theories that will never see the light of day. Like most journalists I know, I try to read everything. You have this fear that the one message you overlook or dismiss could turn out to be the big one, the key to something huge. But like most hacks, if you don't get me on the first line, you're in the bin. If patience is a virtue, then I'm headed straight for hell. First class, of course. I read on. Although I've never been involved with organised crime, I spent nearly 40 years in the New York State prison system for committing murder in 1976 when I was 16 and suffering from an abundance of stupidity and perhaps insanity. OK, now I'm interested. I live in Cambridge, where I work remotely for Yale University as a creative writer. I would like to relocate to Ireland because of conversations about Belfast I've had with a former resident. Moreover, I've been in Cambridge five years and wish to be elsewhere. I won't take up much more of your time except to thank you for reading my message and possibly giving my request consideration. Sincerely, Dempsey. So it's not often I hear from a convicted murderer who fancies a move to one of my favourite cities and who presents himself with impeccable manners. So I do the obvious thing. I type his name into Google. And very soon I'm reading about an incredible life, a life largely spent behind bars, paying the price for a murder committed almost 50 years ago. I want to know more. I reply to his message. I'm Nicola Talent. You're listening to Crime World, and this is the story of Dempsey Hawkins. I was born in Hammersmith Hospital, uh, December 1959. 
And uh, my mother, she's white. She was uh, born and raised in Hampstead Heath. She met my father, who was black, when he was stationed in the Air Force in London. They met at a place called the Flamingo in Soho in the 1950s. So had me, and I went back with my mother to uh, live with, I, retur- I went to the United States to reach, uh, live with my mother. And uh, I grew up in New York. I was happy, I was content. There were no problems. Me and my friends would just uh, uh, live in a, a life, you know, like um, out of Huckleberry Friend in one sense. You know, it, there was adventure in it. There was spontaneity. And there's always spontaneity when you're young because you're not, you know, you don't, the only responsibility you have is school. When you come out of school, it's basically you do your homework and then you've got that free time. So you're not ruled by the clock as you are as an adult. Me and my friends would never have a plan, but we would get together after school and we'd always be into some kind of adventure, whether it's playing sports, riding our bikes somewhere or something like that. None of my friends were ever in trouble. We didn't, we were never into drugs. We never into alcohol. Nobody's getting into trouble. We're just keeping our nose clean and, uh, yeah, and so, um, and as far as academics and school, yeah, it, it was a situation where um, at one point, me and my friend would have, we would we were in competition, who could have the perfect attendance, who was always at school, you know, never missing a day. So that was no problem. Susan Jacobson was a couple of years younger than Dempsey, but they grew up together in the same Staten Island neighbourhood. They got to know each other properly when, during a game of baseball in the spring of 1975, Dempsey got a little too close to Susan's bat and took a painful hit to the face. After this auspicious start, they began talking on the phone and going for walks around the neighbourhood, the usual teenage romance. Her parents were concerned about how their mixed-race relationship would be seen, but Dempsey was soon attending Sunday morning church services with the Jacobsons and joining the whole family for afternoon card games. By the end of the year, Dempsey was infatuated. But in the early weeks of 1976, just after Dempsey's 16th birthday and shortly before Susan's 14th, they received some life-changing news. Susan was pregnant. Sexual was involved, and then, yes, and then an abortion came, and then uh, we were forced to split up, and I couldn't see myself without her. I just, I, I couldn't see it happening. I couldn't see it happen. It's like the, you know, it's like the world was starting to open up beneath my feet, and I was trying to steady myself. And so, in other words, that it was calamitous to me. I, you know, at that age, you know, you just think of the immediate, the immediate uh, moment. You, you don't have the mercy of time. You can't see time. You just see the here and now. I felt terrible. I, there was no anger at all. It was just, it was sadness. And what it was, it was a, it was a mixture of confusion. You might say, if I can really pinpoint the um, emotion. It, it was just different emotions. It's the way different clouds form in the sky. And did your own mother know? No, no, no. It was just me. If she knew, perhaps, you know, you know, hindsight, of course, is 2020 division, but if she knew, perhaps there would have been, you know, some type of sit down, speak dialogue, you know, and so things would have just 
could have become, uh, how should I say, settled from there or begun on the road to being settled. So no, it was just everything, that, I was just keeping everything inside of me. I was just carrying this facade like everything was all right, but on the inside there was turmoil. I was th I considered suicide and I was thinking of all the ways to commit suicide until I thought about uh, murdering her. And, and the insanity of it all was once I started thinking about the idea of murdering Susan, I, could, I never got off it. I don't, I can't even begin to, I can't even say when I just latched on to the idea of um, murder, but I just did at some point, you know, whether I didn't, I can't tell you I was walking on the street, I thought this, I woke up in the morning and thought it, I have no idea when it came upon me, but the idea, it started to formulate, and as it started to formulate, I never let it go. I thought I would kill her, then kill myself, and that would be the end of it. It was just, I latched onto it and it just, it was the only way I knew how to get off this emo emotional roller coaster because we were supposed to end the relationship and I couldn't see myself doing it. I just, it, like I said, I just kept on thinking about it and thinking about it until I brought it to fruition. On May 15th, 14-year-old Susan Jacobson left her Staten Island home to interview for a job at a local ice cream parlor. When she didn't come home that night, her parents called the police. The police figured she was a runaway and reckoned she'd be back before long. But she didn't show up. We were basically told that our daughter was 14, she had a boyfriend, and she ran away. Point blank, that was it. And there's nothing they can do because if she ran away, uh, they don't have manpower to go and look for 14-year-old girls who run away. Uh, so we had nothing. On the north shore of Staten Island, there's a place called Port Ivory. It's an industrial area overlooking Newark Bay, with New Jersey visible across the water. That Saturday afternoon in 1976, Dempsey went with Susan to Port Ivory, where they climbed down into a disused underground room kind of like a bunker that must have once belonged to one of the many factories in the area. I can remember everything, but it's difficult to talk about because it's, because it's horrible. And I'm still ashamed about it. There's no embarrassment, but there is deep shame. We were sitting side by side, Dempsey would later tell the New York Times. It was hot. He had taken off his shirt. With the arm of the shirt I put around her neck as if to kiss her and I just started squeezing it. Her hands went up to the shirt and I just looked away and I just kept squeezing the shirt. Susan stopped moving. Dempsey lifted her body, concealed it inside a barrel and pushed the barrel up against a wall. Then he went home. And it was only after the act, you might say, it's like I started to realize the insanity of it all. It was that, you know, afterwards, it was like a spell that had been broken. It's like I had I had become sober at that moment. It's like I was under, I was intoxicated by my own immaturity, stupidity. 
I remember leaving that area and in that area there um, was a Procter & Gamble factory. Procter & Gamble makes everything. Pringles, Scope, Crest toothpaste, everything. So in this Procter & Gamble factory there was a dock and I remember a heavyset guy in suspenders. He was just sitting out there smoking a cigarette, just looking off into the distance. And I remember thinking at that moment, what would he think if he knew what I had just done? And I carried on throughout that day after that. But I remember that distinctly. I remember that guy just sitting there on that dock after I committed this crime and wondering what he would have thought we would have known what just happened not too far from him. Does it torture you to think back and to just think if those moments could have been different, if you could have released your hands, if... Does it continue to torture you? Yeah, yeah, because it didn't have to be. It did not have to be. You know, some people are, you know, uh, uh, somebody comes in their house, they're threatened, they take a gun, they shoot, they shoot them for protection. Understand that all day long. But what I did was just pure, ir- in irrational emotion. God, run amok. Caught in a moment for the rest of your life. Yes, yes, yes. And so the imprisonment, that wasn't the punishment. The punishment is the memory. That is the punishment. It's the punishment for anyone, you know, and, you know, I don't care, you know, it's whatever, you know, if you've done something in your life that, you know, you look back and you say, God damn, you know, you, or, you know, in so many ways, you know, you move on, but you just now and then think, if I can only have that one day back. There's no getting away from the past. It's like, you know, Wordsworth uh, says in his, he's got a poem. I, I, I don't think, I don't know if it's a poem, but it might be a play, it's called The Borderers, written in 1842. And he was talking about when somebody does something, you know, the nature of regret. He says that um, suffering is permanent, obscure, and dark. It shares the nature of infinity. It does. I'm telling you, it does. Especially when you commit something such as indelible as murder. You can burn somebody's house down. As long as nobody got hurt, you can rebuild. You can build them Buckingham Palace. You can make that better. But when you kill somebody, There's no, you can donate a kidney, you can save a life, you cannot make that moment better in any way. You can't. I thought about it. I still, I'm thinking about it now. You can't. You cannot. Once that, once that deed has been done, that is it. There's no coming, there's no Jesus here. There's no resurrection of the dead. There's no miracles. There's just plain, cold, hard reality. It's like uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, the famous character in that, Rostkolnikov. 
He commits the double murder, but he knows it comes upon him. He knows that he's been, he's excommunicated himself from the human community. Because for the most part, the human community doesn't kill anybody. They do bad things, sure, but they don't kill anybody. But so when you do, you're forever outside the human community, this, the, the community of civility. Months went by and Susan's body remained undiscovered. Her family searched endlessly for her. Susan's father would later describe how they had up to 40 people out looking for her, sometimes even around Port Ivory. One of those 40 people is Dempsey, Bill Jacobson told the New York Times. I have 39 people getting bitten by mosquitoes, bugs, stupid little animals, looking in the weeds, and Dempsey's sitting on the shoreline looking out at the world, doing nothing. We searched a vast amount of Staten Island. Eventually, we got into a place that is called Downback. In this area is an abandoned shipyard that was apparently active in World War I. Every time we got close, he would just come up with a story to take us to a different location, Susan's sister Janice said. We searched as much as we could by ourselves. We felt that we had done a good search. Unfortunately, we never found my daughter. Later, when Dempsey repeatedly sought parole, this particularly painful deception would weigh heavily against his case. When you come to the stage, when you not only think about murder, but carry it out. It had the, the, the only other question can be, what aren't you capable of? What betrayal, disloyal, what, what, what more, what more, what more negativity aren't you capable of, of uh, involving yourself in? And when I committed my crime, I was running and I needed some place to go because I knew once I committed that crime that I couldn't uphold the facade of innocence for uh, indefinitely. I was telling one lie after another just to um, hide, just to uh, evade, you know, get away from the truth. And so I thought that uh, I spoke to my mother that, you know, she sensed there was something wrong, but she didn't know what. My mother always told me, she says, look, there is nothing that you can't speak with me about. But when you're 16 and you've killed someone, how do you go to your mother and say, uh, where do you begin? Because, you know, after I committed the crime, you know, the guilt that came on me was, you know, immeasurably heavy. And then just at that age, I still I just understood the absurdity of it all that I actually think that I could just kill someone and live happily ever after. I mean, how did I think that was a good idea? So the insanity of it, the, the madness of it, how do you at 16 begin to find the thread to which begin a narrative? How do you even explain that? So my thing was just to hide and invade. And so um, uh, that's what prompted the move to go live with my father and meet him in uh, Southern Illinois. Uh, met my father and we were driving to his house. We were 
I, we came from the airport in Kentucky, a small airport in Patuka, Kentucky, and we were driving over the bridge into Illinois, and there was a big sign that came, like, writ large in his car headlights, and it says, the people of Illinois welcome you. For a moment, I thought I was away from it all, but as we drove on, I just knew that no matter, that distance wouldn't allow me to outrun myself. committed crime uh, May 15th, 1976. Her body was uh, discovered at the end of March 1978, and I was arrested uh, either, I can't read, I can never remember the date, you were May 10th or May 5th of 1978. Nearly two years after the murder, a local boy came across the barrel. He thought he'd found dog bones inside. He came back with two friends a while later and that's when they discovered Susan's pants and shoes. They called the police. The autopsy revealed that Susan had been strangled and her body dumped at the bottom of the water-filled hole. I told two friends what I had done because I wanted to try to lessen some of the burden of my guilt and have it shared with some, you know, other people. So in other words, if I rob a bank and, you know, I'm feeling bad about it and you're my friend, I said, look, Nick, I robbed this bank and da-da-da-da, I wish I hadn't done it. And But the reason I'm telling you about that is because I want you to, to I want to transfer some of that guilt towards you to, to someone. I want to lessen it for me. And there again, we come back to the selfishness because it's me. It's trying to make myself feel better by uh, alleviating, you know, by trying to uh, alleviate, transfer some of the guilt, just through confession. One of those friends was Dempsey's cousin, Willie Hawkins. When Susan's body was found, Willie went to the police and told them about his cousin's confession. In May 1978, two police officers, they would state troopers, uh, uh, came, knocked at the door, and uh, they walked in because the door was open and they said, uh, they asked me my name, you know, just, they knew. It was just me and the two officers in the house, at my father's house at that time. My father was at work and I said, yes. And they said, uh, we have, you know, you have to come with us. We have a, a warrant for your arrest, second degree murder. And I, right there, I was scared to death you know, fear, everything, because then again, here, the the crime comes back to me full flush. Not only do I know about it, but now it's out, other people know about it. Dempsey Hawkins, Susan's boyfriend, was arrested, tried, and convicted of her murder. When those handcuffs came on me, and I heard the slow click, 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 handcuffs, that noise, it was like a reverberation. And that felt that click, click, click. I mean, it just got right into my brain. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was almost a silence, you know, kind of quiet noise, but it was really thunderous in my mind. And at that moment, it was relief because I didn't have to run anymore. It was over. 
This episode of Crime World was produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Claude Amini was the assistant producer. This episode uses clips from Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack, first aired on NBC in 1988. We'll tell the rest of Dempsey's story, describing his 38 years in prison and his eventual release in the next episode of Crime World. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.